0: Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, praise God. It is so good to have uh, Pastor Raphael with us. Brother, thank you for those encouraging words. And uh, I'm just so glad that you're here this morning. Um, I I wish that your wife and daughter were able to be here. They had a a previously scheduled thing in in Chicago that they weren't able to be with us. But... uh, but it's so good to have you, brother. Um, I want all of you, over the course of uh, a couple of weeks ago, or actually this week, Reynolds and I were, were speaking in my office, and he was asking me how old I was. He knew that. I don't know why he asked me. But I said, well, I'm 44. And he says, you got 20 years left, preacher. And so I guess he was assuming in my mid-60s I would start to lose my effectiveness, and that would be it for me. And so 20 years left, Lord willing, uh, of ministry here. Uh, And maybe you guys will kind of let me be like the emeritus guy that comes out once a year or whatever. And 20 years left of maybe going to Uganda and um, in partnership with with King Jesus Church and Pastor Raphael. I would would love it if everybody at Crosspoint over the years, this is not just a two-year partnership, we're going to continue this, Lord willing, until Jesus comes back. I would love it if everybody at cross Point over the years would just be able to go to Uganda and just be infected with the gospel centered joy that we have been infected with and it is it is such a delight to have you here brother we're having lunch after church uh, with Pastor Raphael, so if you signed up for that we 're going I think we 're going to meet over there in the youth auditorium that is still uh, under construction but we 're going to have some good uh, southern fried chicken from Hearts, um, a little southern comfort food for Pastor Raphael where it, you'll be able to get to know him a little bit. And, um, and it's really good to have the Caldwells here, Josh and Stacy, Josh is in the back there um, walking in with their son Moses. Uh, and Josh will be doing a Q&A with Pastor Raphael afterwards. It's really good to have them. And they, they, Josh has just been instrumental in our partnership with Uganda and King Jesus Church and so it's a it's a joy to have you here brother. Well, if you have a Bible I'd love for you to open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves in our journey through this letter from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. As you're finding 1 Thessalonians let me mention that this coming Wednesday for the next 4 Wednesdays we will begin our midweek fellowship And the topic of the Midweek Fellowship will be eschatology, or that's just a a biblical or a theological term for the end times. And so I would love for you to come. I'll be teaching just four weeks, Wednesday night. I think we have a slide there that shows it, maybe, if you can get to it. And it says we have dinner at 545. Uh, Please RSVP for that. And then we'll begin the teaching at 630. Now, it's only going to be four weeks, and we're trying to take a whole bunch of different views and thoughts and perspectives and do kind of a broad overview. So this Wednesday, we're going to begin with looking at what the different perspectives on what the millennium is, on post and amillennial and premillennial, uh, different viewpoints in the Christian church. We're going to look at uh, our, our own personal eschatology, like what happens after we die in a few weeks. We're going to look at Uh, we're, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament patches that talk about the future. And we're going to look at just kind of the relationship between the church and Israel. So lots of really meaty things to get into. Really looking forward to that. Need you to sign up for the meal. And, uh, we'd love to have you here at, at 630 for the next four Wednesdays. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in front of you. Um, and, and, uh, follow along with us. Uh, if you aren't used to looking up, uh, verses in the Bible, you can find 1 Thessalonians on, uh, chap- on page 775 or 986 of the Bible that uh, we provide for you. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to take that Bible and just keep it as, as your own. Okay, now this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think is a, just a wonderful picture of what a ministry should be, what a pastor's heart should be. And as I was thinking about this text, these 12 verses that we're going to read this morning and work through, uh, not to embarrass him, but uh, I think we have an actual, just a beautiful picture of what Paul is speaking about, of what a true gospel-centered motivation and ministry should be in our brother, Pastor Raphael. In fact, as I was reading this week and knowing that he would be here and preparing, I thought, this is... Raphael. And so we we just have a beautiful picture of that before us. And I think we'll be tempted, I think, as we read this to think, oh, well, you know, this is really a message for pastors and for what their heart should be. I think we should see in this text a picture of what life should look like in the local church. This is another one of those, just another one of those, those, puzzles on the outside of the box where we have all the pieces kind of scattered around. And I want us to see this beautiful picture of what life together in the local church. So it's going to be hard because I have a, a, a microphone in one hand and the glasses thing I'm still not getting down to. But so bear with me as, as I read in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through, through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to show us wonderful things from his law. Father, as we, as we open up your text and as we gather this morning on this this holiday weekend in our country where we celebrate and remember our independence, we are, first of all, very grateful for your kind providence and putting us in this place and this time. We thank you for our country. We thank you for our political leaders. And even though we live in a land that is increasingly marked by political leaders that are hostile to the gospel, we nevertheless pray that you would bless our leaders. We pray that you would change their minds. We pray for those that have um, uh, policies and viewpoints that are against your word, that they would uh, be voted out of office and that that people that uh, trust in you and believe in you would be voted into office. But Lord, we know that we're not dependent on those things. You are not wringing your hands in heaven. You, uh, you are in heaven, as the psalmist says, and you do whatever you please. You exalt and you tear down all authority. And so we rest in that fact, and we thank you for our country, and in particular, we thank you for our military and. The many soldiers that are part of this church, some even that are deployed as we speak in harm's way, we pray that you would keep them safe and bring them back home to their families safely. And we pray that they would accomplish their mission. And we pray for open doors for the gospel in these lands in Afghanistan and other places. Lord, we now turn our attention to this text, and we we need to see a picture of what it means to be a community that has a motivation that's pure and Christ-like. Lord, let us see this beautiful truth and humble us, encourage us, convict convict us, chasten us, and form us more into the image of Christ. And I pray for any that are in this room, and certainly there are some, Lord, in in a crowd this size, I pray for any that are not yet trusting in Christ, that you, by your kindness, would make Jesus so beautiful and so irresistible that they would see the beauty of the risen King Jesus, and their hearts would melt, and they would turn from self-trust, and they would turn from sin and put their faith and hope in Christ. I pray that you'd do this for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of the lost. Help us now as we study your text. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think to help us with a, a little brief outline of this text, I want us to see two things, and they are alliterated. They, all, they both start with the same letter, so um, some of you that like it when I alliterate will be happy. I want us to see Paul's motive and Paul's method here for gospel ministry. Paul's motive and Paul's method. The first we see, Paul's motive in verses 3 through 6. Let me read again where he says that this appeal, what he's doing here, just a little context before we get into what Paul's motivation is in, in his ministry to the Thessalonians, is remember that we read a, a couple weeks ago how the church started in first, in, in uh, Acts chapter 17. Paul was taking the gospel across the Roman Empire. He, he In fact, he alludes to some trouble that he had in Philippi uh, before he came to Thessalonica. So if you want some good reading on a Sunday afternoon, read how Paul planted the church in Philippi and how it caused this great disturbance. He was thrown into jail. He, well, first, before he was thrown into jail, him and Silas were beaten, stripped, shackled, and thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. And w- when you get stripped, beaten, and shackled, what do you do when it's midnight? Well, of course, you have a prayer meeting and a hymn sing. That's the first thing that's on Paul's mind. That's what they do at the jail in Philippi. And there's an earthquake that shakes the door, loosens the shackles off of Paul and Silas, and the jailer is about ready to commit suicide because he can't believe what's going on. And Paul stops him and says, wait a minute, what are you doing? And the guy looks to him, realizing that this isn't just some natural occurrence, but that this earthquake is obviously a supernatural event for from God, meaning to spring his servants. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Well, then Paul, now this is after midnight, right? Paul preaches the gospel to him. This guy invites Paul and Silas to his house, where then Paul preaches the gospel to his whole family, who then becomes Christians, who then are all baptized, while this jailer then bathes, uh, he washes off uh, Paul's wounds, and all of this before morning time. Talk about a night, And then the jailer says, hey man, I think you guys need to get out of the town. The magistrates have come and said you guys need to leave. And this is before Paul even goes to Thessalonica. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, you tell those magistrates that I'm a Roman citizen and I was unjustly jailed. They need to come personally and, you know, let me go. And so the magistrates kind of come with their tail between their legs and say, "Oh Paul, we're really sorry. This was sort of unlawful. I know. Can you just kind of get out of town?" And that's the backdrop of them Paul going to Thessalonica, where then we read Paul in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 plants the church, another disturbance, and this time he has to leave, he has to leave town, and God doesn't do anything supernatural to sort of to sort of quell the disturbance. I'm just amazed, before we even look at Paul's motivation, is Paul is he is just walking under the sovereignty of God, knowing that in Philippi this miraculous thing happened. In Thessalonica, there wasn't some miraculous event from God. But Paul is just rock solid, not questioning God, just having this motivation to pour out his life, no matter what God does with him to the people that he's in front of. And now he's in front of these people. So let's read again and see Paul's motive in verses 3 through 6. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So The first thing I want us to see in Paul's motive in ministry in Thessalonia is, is first is not to please man. In other words, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians who are now that Paul has left Thessalonica His ministry is beginning to be challenged by some of the people who hadn't turned to Christ, and they're wanting to discredit Paul's motivation. They're wanting to discredit his heart. So in a sense, Paul is defending himself against his critics in chapter 2, and he's saying, no, my motives were pure, and I wasn't there to please man. I was there to please God. In other words, Paul is saying that there are times... When as a true minister of the gospel, you will have to tell people not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And Paul is saying, that's what I did when I was with you. In fact, later on in Second Timothy uh, chapter 4, listen to these words that he then later writes to his young companion in the ministry that was with him, T- uh, Timothy. And he writes this in Second Timothy 4. And oh, this is, I mean, just the just how this applies to us even in America today. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 about not pleasing man but pleasing God and being bold and courageous. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Listen to verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Those words could be written to us today. People have itching ears, and Paul is saying, I wasn't here to to please man that's the first thing that we see in Paul's motivation i read this book about a year ago called the work of the pastor and it was written by a scottish pastor who pastored in the 1900s it sounds so long ago but actually it, it, i was actually born in the 1900s uh, but this this pastor his name is william still he he ministered in scotland and i think he passed away in the in the early 1980s and listen to this. I believe I've read this before to you, but it's so good. It's coming back out as a greatest hits quote reading here. This is from William Steele, the work of the pastor, about how uh, the true motive of a true gospel minister is to, to not please men, but to, but to give them truth. He says, The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goatland. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God, by His Spirit, changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men. Of the Word of God. And Paul is writing to these Thessalonians, and he's saying that I didn't come to try and tickle your ears or to please men. And secondly, not just that he says I didn't come to please men, but I didn't come for personal gain. Notice what he says there in verse 4, that that we didn't come, or in verse 5, with a pretext for greed. I wasn't doing this ministry so that I would gain from you financially in any way, or even in any other way. Pastor Raphael mentioned the scourge of the prosperity gospel that exists in Uganda, and I realized as I was there for a week and a half in Uganda that the number one export of America is the prosperity gospel, and it makes I mean, it does. It makes it makes you angry. I mean, you can grind your teeth down at night, getting so angry at what um, is piped out on these stations like TBN, all this garbage that people think that that's what Christianity is. But I think that there's something even more subtle than prosperity preachers who ask for your money or for church gurus that many of us in this church might be uh, vulnerable to or what even leaders like myself may be, may be vulnerable to. I think that as I have been around my own heart for the past 17 years that I've been in pastoral ministry and around other pastors, I think that that people in ministry and just in leadership in general often are marked by two Characteristic uh, uh, traits, character traits is narcissism and insecurity. And when those two things sort of intersect, I mean, it is a train wreck, and I can just sort of feel it in my own soul, and I can see it on other people's softness, just this, this, this sense where, where leaders and pastors and preachers are sort of there to work out their own need for people to like them and approve of them and let them know that they are worthwhile. And it's just this sort of subtle thing that it kind of runs through their whole ministry. It's like, like me, like me, please tell me that I'm doing good. And, you know, I, I have to confess that I have to constantly beat that down in my own soul. And notice what Paul is saying. He's saying that I wasn't there for that. I didn't care about my own heart and what I was gaining from you. I was so focused on you. So he says his motivation is not to please man it's not personal gain and then finally we see it is to please god notice the I want you to see this notice the godwardness of paul's ministry in verse 4 he says he says that he was approved by god that he's been entrusted with god's gospel and that he has to please god who test his heart. Notice that his orientation was not sticking his finger up in the air wondering what people were thinking, but there was this relentless Godwardness in Paul's ministry. He cared about pleasing God and in turn, that's actually the best way that he could serve the people was by not by pandering to them, but by pleasing God first and in so doing, he would care for the people in the best way possible. Ed Welch, this Christian counselor up in Philadelphia has written this book that uh, I've mentioned several times. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Uh, I think we sell it in the Resource Center. He has this wonderful quote in there about about this um, desire that we all have to please people rather than God. And he, he really puts his finger on the problem here. He says, regarding other people, our problem is that we need them for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. The task God sets for us is to need them less and to love them more. And that's Paul's heart in pastoral ministry, is to please God more than the people. And do you see that in so doing, by pleasing God, he's actually benefiting the people. He's not caring about what what the popular opinion is of his message. He's not bending it to a particular demographic. Oh, if we, will, if we will just do this, then we can get these people to kind of come and be part of it. If we can just do this, then we can do this. You see, he's, he's focused on making much of Christ, lifting up the gospel, and then he's letting the sovereign Lord just figure out what he will do with that faithfulness. So we see Paul's motive. And then we see Paul's method in verses 7 through 12. Let me read those again. Paul says in verse 7, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. "'For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. "'We worked night and day "'that we might not be a burden to any of you "'while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. "'You are witnesses, and God also, "'how holy and righteous and blameless "'was our conduct toward you believers.'" For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We see here Paul's method. After we've seen his heart, his motivation, his his method of doing ministry. And I want us to just notice just the really the utter simplicity of the church in Thessalonica. And I want it to be a kind of model for for. For us Americans who often overcook and overcomplexify life in the local church. A couple of things I want us to see here and then we'll conclude. First is that, that Paul shared his life. That was his that was his method. That was what he did. He, he planted himself in the community, much like Pastor Raphael has done. And he just opened up his home. He opened up his heart and he shared his life. Notice the analogy that he uses there. He says like a nursing mother taking care of her, of her own children. Now I've been I've been sort of up hand like first hand personal experience to a nursing mother four times with four children. And and if it wasn't enough when they were born, it was enough to watch them when they grow women are well well they're just in many many ways superior to men. Can I get a north south on that? Right? Right. I mean, the way my wife can operate with a lack of sleep and a baby getting up in the middle of the night and and to just even hear her on the As i was maybe even too lazy to get up to hear a, a mother singing to her children i mean, think about a mother's heart for her child that is nursing i mean you have everything you have my heart you have my life what's mine is yours and this is the picture that paul paints of his heart towards the church not that he had to organize them and do all of this. All those things may be helpful to do, but notice how Paul speaks of what life in the local church should be like. This shared life, we care so much for one another that we are—we have this type of heartstring relationship between a mother and her nursing infant. Friends, just imagine for me for a moment a church family whose hearts are wide open to one another like this. Just Imagine what that would look like. Listen to Paul in another letter. He writes to a church, the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 through 13. Listen to this. And before I read this text out of 2 Corinthians, realize that this church in Corinth was an absolute disaster. I mean, unlovable, carnal, ridiculously pagan, jacked up, sinful, hard to love sandpaper for personality, people. Not like, any, not like any of you guys at all, nothing. <laughs> this difficult to love, very frustrating church. Listen to how Paul writes to them about his heart for them. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts. Friends, imagine for me what life would look like if if, a church family, just everybody just widened open their hearts towards one another, almost like a mother nursing her children. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine the beauty, the community, the joy. And I tell you, I saw a picture of that a couple of weeks ago as, as Pastor Raphael was speaking to us and he was talking and I was convicted by that. I was encouraged. I was exhorted and convicted by the beautiful, wide open hearts that I saw in that little community. And what would that look like here? Friends, this takes work. It doesn't just happen overnight because Americans are awkward, individualistic, closed off people who are insecure, who walk into a room with their arms folded, surveying the room, seeing who how they stack up up to everybody else, judging other people, because this, and then, look at her, she, and then we, and then when we, we, we get done, we're in a public place, and we judge each other, and then, you know, we, we scurry back into our little caves, and get on Facebook, and look at each other, and judge each other on Facebook, and do you not think that this type of, this mindset that we just, this air that we grow up breathing has an effect on our ability to open our hearts to one another? You better believe it. I know this is getting tough for you right now, but just, just just give me a north-south. Do you know what I'm talking about? Let's let's open our hearts to one another. And then, then, like we talked about last week, let's remember that this type of inward fellowship actually God uses to produce an outward echo. So it's not mutually exclusive, a church that loves one another fiercely. And it's committed to one another, to caring for one another. That's not an inclusive community when done rightly. But when a church does this rightly, God uses that beautiful aroma to be an outward echo, as we read in chapter one, where it says that the gospel sounded forth from them because of the way they were doing life. And friends, this is hard. It, is, it takes work. It is difficult. It's awkward. It's frustrating. It's slow because we are still very much in progress aren 't we? so a couple practical things, man. Some of you show up ten minutes ten minutes late, and you leave ten minutes early and you don 't know anybody and you 're mad because you don 't know anybody and it 's nobody 's fault but yours right and then and then you come and you, you know we 're just, just closed off from one another and, and, and Paul is 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 pressing on us here. The Holy Spirit is pressing on us here to open up our hearts to one another. Okay, I'll move on because I know it's getting uncomfortable and you guys are starting to squirm a little bit. So we're going to move on to point number two here of Paul's method is that he proclaimed the gospel. Notice that that he just He would just speak the words of life everywhere he went. And if we read there that he proclaimed the gospel, notice what it it says there in verse 8. He says, I was ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, it's the gospel of God. He didn't speak about us, about how God will benefit us, but it's the The gospel of God. And friends, listen, this is the message that should be front and center in every gathering of every Christ-centered church, of every biblical church. It should be the gospel. It's not something that we move past. It's not the beginning of the Christian life. It's the whole of the Christian life. It is everything. And so we want to lift up the gospel. Christians don't just need the gospel to be saved. They need the gospel to live. And they need the gospel to complete them. They need the gospel. We all need the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? Do we Are we a gospel-centered culture? The gospel, listen to me, clearly, friends, the gospel, hear me on this, the gospel is the good news that God is holy and righteous and good and has created everything for His glory. And He created mankind as the pinnacle of his of his creation to be in his image and we have all rebelled against him every one of us whether it is obvious and external or whether it is internal and self righteousness and moralism All of us have rebelled against God, and that is, the Bible calls it sin, and that sin separates us from a holy God, and now all of us are born in that state. We are born separated from God, and we are completely unable to do anything about it. And then comes the good news of the gospel, is that God doesn't leave us in that place. He comes to us in the form of Jesus the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who comes as a a man takes on the likeness of sinful flesh. Listen to this. So the creator, Jesus the son, becomes a man, lives a life, faces everything that we face, is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, and then lays down his perfect, holy, righteous life as a sacrifice For us to be our substitute and then bears the wrath and the punishment of the Father that should have been ours. And because he's a holy God and a completely righteous man, he has enough. He is sufficient to bear our punishment. He does it on the cross. God the Father punishes God the Son in our stead and the holy eternal Son of God extinguishes and satisfies and cancels God's wrath and turns it into favor and then dies and rises again, defeats death, sin, and all of its consequences and now commands all people everywhere to turn from their sin and trust in Him and those that He is drawing to Himself, in fact, He gives the very thing that He requires of them, which is faith and he gives it to them, and then they are made alive by his sovereign mercy, and they trust in him. That's the gospel, and then they live lives. They are now made alive by his sovereign power, and are now united to him, and live lives of ever-increasing joy, where they now serve as subjects, as delighted subjects of a beautiful, benevolent king. Friends, that's the gospel. And when the Bible tells us that when that message is preached, it draws unbelievers, those whom God is saving. It draws them. It brings life to them. And it causes Christians to be encouraged and to be fortified in their fight against sin. So here's my question for those of you that may be in this room and have never heard that. Or maybe you've heard it before, but this is the first time that it's clicked for you. Do you believe that gospel. You must believe that gospel. That's the good news. That's what the Bible is about. From Genesis to Revelation is the good news of what God the Father has done in God the Son by the power of God the Spirit to redeem a people for himself. Is that where your hope is? That's where your hope must be. Do you believe that gospel? Secondly, if you believe that gospel, can you share it with others? We are to be a community that is equipped with the knowledge of that gospel so we can share it with people in our spheres of influence. And then moving on, two more quick aspects of Paul's method, and then we'll conclude, is that he modeled Christlikeness. He, tells, he mentions his own conduct and his righteousness and his blamelessness towards the church in Thessalonica. It reminds me of his words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pastors are to do more than just preach God's word. They're to to model God's word. And friends, we need your prayers on that. We are fallible, sinful people still in process. And one of the best ways that you can encourage your leaders is to pray for their, for, their, for their life, for their sanctification, to pray for their marriages, to pray for their children, to pray that their lives would match their teaching. Of course, no person can do that perfectly. But by God's grace, I pray that, that we would be able, that I would be able... The other pastors and leaders in this church would be able to model a Christ-likeness so that our message, what we teach from the scriptures, is embodied by how we live. And friends, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Spurgeon, my hero, said that he would, that, that the secret to his ministry was the prayers of his people. And I, I encourage you, I exhort you, I, I plead with you to pray for your pastors, not just their ministry, but also their lives. And then finally, he says in verse 12 that he exhorted and encouraged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. So he used the mother analogy and he says like a father with his children, I encouraged you and exhorted you to, to live in this way. He, He'd be like a dad who's teaching a, a kid how to do something. And where a mother is tender, the father is strong and correcting and courageous and, and at times rebuking and exhorting and, and insisting that that the children live in a particular way and we see that Paul would do that. Notice just the simplicity as we've worked through this list. He shared his life. He proclaimed the gospel. He lived out the gospel before the people and then he exhorted and encouraged them with conviction and strength and boldness and sometimes he told people that what they didn't want to hear but he, he didn't care because he cared more about pleasing God and he knew that when he would please God, he would ultimately be for the better of the people. Some more wisdom from our brother, Uncle William, still from Scotland. He says, There is no greater or better way to make an impact than by sounding forth the word of God and bringing people under its life-changing and character-transforming power. The reverberations of such a ministry extend further and further, and the ramifications of its influence spread farther abroad than we ever dreamt of, And all without thought on our part or attempt at publicity, self-aggrandizement, or self-justification. Do get my point, which is that if the hope of the world is Christ, it is Christ in all the scriptures. And that hope can only be fulfilled by men pouring out the riches of Christ's saving grace upon the Lord's people through the scriptures. And not just pastors, but a whole church that is just standing on this foundation of the Word of God with a heart for one another that's open wide, where our lives are open and we care more for God's glory than we care for ourselves, and we have the courage to have hard conversations with one another, and we share our lives, and we proclaim the gospel, and we model Christ likeness, and we exhort and encourage one another, and we grip arms, and we march headstrong to that day when Jesus will come again, and finally and fully set all things right. Oh, let's, let's be that type of church. Let's long for that type of community. Let's long for that type of heart. For one another, pray with me, father, as we as we respond now to your word and as we worship, I pray that you would give us a, a, a glimpse of this. I, I see glimmers of this in our life together as a church, and I confess how often my motives don 't match what paul 's are here, and I pray God that you would burn up any any impurity or any greed or any self-absorption in me and that you would transform it into this pure gospel motive that Paul had I pray that it wouldn't just it wouldn't just be in leaders in this church but that you would you would give us a collective heart as you have displayed for us here in this text text for one another and that we would be a type of community that shares our heart with one another and that the way we are radically committed to one another's good and upholding the gospel and speaking the truth in Christ, that it would sound forth into our neighbors and the nations. I pray that you would do these things and transform us into Christ more and more by your spirit so that you would be pleased and glorified and we would have more and more joy Lord I pray that you would continue this work in us and I pray that anybody in this room that is not trusting in Christ that you would call them to faith in Jesus even now that they would trust in Christ not in themselves they would see the beauty of the risen king who bids them to joy who beckons them to true life true joy, not in some counterfeit pleasure, some sin or self-trust, but who beckons us to trust in him alone for our right standing with you. Lord, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and for our good as we respond to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.